There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we'll be discussing the incredible 120 beats per minute and later we'll be joined by the film's writer and director Robin Campillo. Joining me this week are Irena Musumeci. Hello. Hello. And making his podcast debut is Julian Allen. Hello. Hello. You are a first generation Twitter per- film Twitter person. Oh dear. <laughs> and Orson Welles connoisseur, a cricket player and a choir singer. None of which qualify me for this podcast. All of them damning. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, so, uh, Julian, you've you've written about Robin Campillo before yeah. for uh, Reverse Shot. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Do you want to quickly just talk about Campillo's work before 120 Beats Per Minute? Just to, how does this film reflect on his sort of development as a filmmaker? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, just factually speaking, I mean, Robin Campillo was a film student in the early 80s in the famous French... Uh, film school, La Femis. Um, <clears throat> he came to prominence actually as an editor uh, for Laurent Canté, who's a, uh, perhaps a more established film filmmaker. And his collaboration with Canté was so uh, was so sort of happy and fruitful that that he became very quickly his co-writer on some of his on some of his frankly his best films, um, notably Time Out and Heading South uh, and The Class. Uh, he himself broke into directing with a film about well, ostensibly about zombies, but of course it was about much more than that, um, called They Came Back. Um, and uh, that made a few waves, but I don't think got released in the UK. His subsequent film, Eastern Boys, which is the one that I've um, uh, written about, was um, if essentially a, a bit of a liberation uh, from his earlier work in the sense that he started to find, I think, his his voice as a director uh, and one of the... Um, yeah, one of the key things about that is that he allowed actors effectively to to decide and inhabit the, the sequences that he was directing, and and he he bounced much more off the actors. And I think 120 BPM beats per minute is probably a culmination of of that process. And he, as soon as he found with Eastern Boys that he could um, he could do this, he he decided it was time to make this film. And and here it is. It's fantastic. Without further ado, then let's quickly introduce the film. So 120 beats per minute, or should we agree on what to call it? Because uh, okay. I've seen it called many different things in different places. I think we're just going for BPM. Go for in, BPM. Yeah, shorter. generally, yeah. It's okay. shorter, easier. So BPM follows the uh, the AIDS activist group ACT UP in Paris in the early 90s. And uh, while we begin to focus on the group as a whole, we focus in on the uh, 
the very outspoken Sean, played by Nahuel Perez Biscaya. Have I pronounced that name okay? You should ask our French expert. Well, I'm not Argentine, and he is, yeah. so I don't know. <laughs> okay, we'll say yes for now. Yeah. Uh, and then the shy newcomer, Nathan, played by Arnold Valois, and the relationship that develops between them. So here we go. Robin Campillo, as Julian just said there, known for his work uh, on the class, heading south, and they came back in Eastern Boys, who was an active member of Act Up Paris in the 90s, and I was lucky enough to speak to him a few days ago. So enjoy. Okay, so uh, Robin Campillo, welcome to the Curzon podcast. Uh, hello. So uh, we're here to talk about 120 beats per minute. So I wanted to start by asking you about the fact that you were a member of ACT UP mm -hmm. and how your experiences with the group have uh, translated into this film. Uh, you know, it's in a very, very simple way because, you know, I didn't do this film uh, uh, out of documents or this kind of thing. Mm. I, I did this film out of my memories. Okay. And the funny thing is, I think when I was in the group, unconsciously, I was... Um, a recording machine, you right, know. Okay. So it's uh, unbelievable how uh, how many details, how many impressions, yeah. feelings, moments of sensuality I had in mind for many, many yeah. years to, during 25 years, yeah. and as it was like I was just waiting to write them down on the script, you know. So it's really, it's like everything in the film is connected to my experience in the film but it's in a fictional way in the way that i try to make a structure which is yeah. not exactly reality right. and to kind of create a perspective not to understand the meaning of all that because that would yeah. I, I don't believe that cinema is about meanings or this kind of thing but just create a perspective just to show how it worked at the time okay so i read in an interview with you recently that uh, Philadelphia, the Jonathan Demme film, yeah. was quite important to you at the time because it was these big Hollywood actors talking about AIDS to yeah. a mainstream audience. And I wanted to ask you then, in general, do you think AIDS as a subject is something that films have, have tackled well? Or is there, are there ways they can do that better? And then what did you want to do with this film that those films didn't talk about? Um. I really think that there are no good subject or bad subject. When I'm right. talking about Philadelphia, it's not exactly that uh, I love the film yeah. as a director. It's because I thought I, 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 would, I was thankful that someone was doing something. Yeah. That, you know, it's uh, something that I, a director, a gay director, say a few years ago in a, the celluloid closet that he was thankful when there was a kind of gay in a yeah, film, yeah, yeah. even if, if it was a caricature. Okay. Because that was good anyway, yeah. you know? And I had this feeling at the time. But, you know, it's always, and that's why for many, many years, I didn't try too much to make a film because I didn't know what to do. Okay. You know, the AIDS epidemic is, is not a um, cinematographical object yeah. by itself. You have to know what's, what the heart of this thing is important yeah. to you and you can put it in your film as a, an electric central, okay. you know what I mean, to yeah, yeah. create emotions, movements, and all of those things. So it took me years and years, and um, uh, I knew that, um, of course, you know, for, there has been about ACT UP, for instance, documentaries mm. yeah, uh, a, a lot, yeah. but um, 
I wanted really to make a fiction because for me, um, in the 80s, as I thought that we were, as gays, we were like poor gay guys, victim yeah. of the epidemic, and uh, like we were like, uh, yes, and when we, did, when we were an actor, we were actors mm. of this epidemic. Okay. So it was a fiction pr process too, you know? Yeah, it yeah. was a way to reinvent ourselves in front of this epidemic. So it has something to do with uh, fiction and okay. not documentary, yeah. you know? So, so that's why it was important. But if you see in my film, you can see documentary yeah, images, sure. but I wanted to show them to make the, f the fiction even more mm. uh, imaginative in a way, you know, to, to make the people realize that it was really a fiction. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, I d you know, you don't, it depends on the, the director, you sure. know, that's, okay. that's it. It's a, it's a, you, if your cinematic approach is interesting, there's something that, you know, you have to mm. find okay. a way. Or a, yeah. And was there a sense when you were writing BPM or conjuring up what you were going to make that you wanted this to be like the film that you would have wanted to see in 1992 in in when you were part of ACT UP, that you thought as a young gay man in Paris that this would have been a, re a film that would have really spoken to you then? Is there ever a sense of that for you? That was impossible okay. to imagine this yeah. film 25 years ago. And that's the thing, because yeah. it was impossible to imagine the society right now 25 years ago. Yeah. And uh, um, it's very weird because we have to admit that things changed. Mm. Not all the things, and you have other topics and other problems. But it changed a, a lot, I think. And uh, I think that Act of Paris in France helped a lot to change okay. the perception of all that. I mean, the, the AIDS, epi the HIV epidemic, but also the gay community, lesbian community, the trans, all those things have been changed because of Act of Paris, okay. I think. And, um, but I couldn't imagine this thing. And you know, it's not, uh, it took me, so much time to be able to do this film and I think it's because I was I was trying to work on my cinema to know what yeah. how to be a very to find a very fluid way of directing people and scenes and editing all that yeah. I was trying to have a kind of flow of, uh, you know and so uh, after that I knew that I could do this film I realized that with my previous film, mm -hmm. Eastern Boys, that I was able to do it, that I was ready to do it. Because, of course, I didn't want to uh, make a failure of this film, yeah. you know, because it was too important to me that the two important things in my life, cinema and the AIDS epidemic. Right. So I, would, I won't do 10 films like this yeah. one, you know. And uh, uh, that's why it, it took me some... But I would have been... I think, whatever the quality of the film, I would have been amazed in 92 yeah. if I could have seen a film like this sure. one. I really think okay. that was unbelievable. Yeah, and you mentioned um, how a lot of the film is fiction. Um, I'm interested in where the characters come from because they're all, I think all the characters in the film serve many different roles, like they are 
they're f- like they're friends they have almost you know, closer than brothers and sisters mm. and but they're also each other's doctors they're also each other's advisors and they also yeah. have to act like politicians and mm. um and writers i mean how do you conjure up these characters that have to be so many different things it's you know for, for instance I, I i was a little bit inspired by real characters sure. but but not so much because i was really inspired by the contradictions between people right, okay. the electricity between people the, and even the tensions mm. between people and uh, uh, i was really inspired by that so you have a few characters like the young hemophiliac mm-hmm. and his mother they are really like in reality right. and they saw the real ca- yeah. person saw the film uh, last year and it was amazing because uh, of course that's uh, fortunately he survived uh, the, right, the disease right. And, uh, and he was very young. It was yeah. like four, 14 or 15 years old sure. when I were there. So that, that was good. But, you know, so I put that on the script. But after, there's a long process, which is called casting. And yeah. for me, that's, uh, the characters are decided at this moment because I choose actor. And my actors become the characters. I forget what was in the script, yeah. you know. And uh, and if you want to have three-dimensional characters, right. it's better to look at your actors instead of looking at your own script. Mm. And uh, and the more you forget script, the more you are, you have you take the rich the richness yeah. of a- everyone. And so you have to find the 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 right persons. And that means also. Because you understand your film more and more yeah. when you are working with that, when you are choosing the actors. For instance, you have Sean in my film. Yeah. And I was searching, I didn't know why, for a foreign actor. Okay. He's not French, he's from Argentina. And for uh, uh, I know someone who is overplaying a little bit, right, you know, okay. a yeah. little bit baroque actor, I yeah. would say. And I found this guy, and because I wanted Sean to be someone who is at the same time sincere, but who has a kind of theatrical distance sure, yeah. with his disease. And I wanted that because it's uh, uh, someone, you know, when the disease become more and more strong, this distance is not possible anymore. And when it end up in the hospital, I told my actor, you stop to play, it's mm. over. You don't do the same thing, you are not the same character. Because most of the time in film, we ask the actor to be very homogenic. And it's stupid because yeah. we are not the same in different sure, situations, yeah. and I and uh, it was hard for him to start stop playing. But yeah. I don't think that's very important. And on the contrary, because I think Sean is someone who is burning himself in the struggle, yeah. and he I wanted someone who were who was overprotecting himself, and that Nathan and Arnaud Valois is someone who is um, protecting himself because mm. he, he was an actor, but he was. Uh, very um, hurt because he didn't get the part he wanted, so he stopped okay. being an actor and he became a master. And I took him back to cinema, <laughs> and I, I knew that he was very quiet and he, he liked to touch people yeah. as if he had healing hands. All these details yeah. are very important, but I, it was not exactly like this in the script. You know, it was. A little bit in the script, but yeah. because I was confronted by uh, these guys, they become more. They became more and more interesting. Yeah, when I'm sure. talking about Arnaud Valois, yeah. I didn't invent all these backgrounds. 
this is his background. Okay. So Brilliant. that makes something which is very rich, and I can talk about all the actors sure, like yeah. this. Um, I think there would perhaps be a sort of existing conception about that a film about AIDS might be a bit depressing and a bit downbeat, but BPM is so, so energetic and so full of life. Can you talk about what sort of techniques you use to get that energy into the film and that sense of like, vitality? Uh, it's um, um, it's um, of course because I, for instance I remembered some anecdotes you yeah. know like some slogans which were so right. stupid and funny <laughs> and you know it's also you have to think the first time I, get, I got into the meeting it was so funny there was yeah. such a jubilation but it was, it was because it was 10 years after the beginning of the epidemic and we were so tired to be yeah. On our closets, and uh, you know, and and the epidemic, the disease took, took us back right. to closets. That's the reality. That there was this kind of energy, and we were like just like uh, uh, badasses. You know, I don't yeah. know how to say, yeah, you know, but no, very that. like uh, very, I, I say like outcast fags and dykes. You know, we were yeah. so excited about all that, and so and we were making jokes of ourselves, and that was so funny. I realized that I even asked myself at the first meeting, but where is the disease? Yeah. You know, because yeah, yeah, it yeah. didn't show, but of course it showed um, after, but uh, shortly met, uh, unfortunately. But I really wanted to, to talk about that. And I wanted to show that it's like in a film, um, um, the guy who did uh, Life is Beautiful, uh, it is oh. wonderful, like Frank Capra. Yeah. You know, what we call uh, Scottish shower, you don't have this expression no, in English. Okay. It means when you come from uh, cold water to hot water okay. directly, right. you know, that what, and uh, 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 it's because of um, the, the material red and blue, right. Scottish sure. one. Yeah. yeah, And so it means that you can come from one emotion to the opposite, the opposite emotions. Yeah. And so the film is funny because yeah. you have this kind of movement, like you are on a roller coaster and you don't know, yeah. and, and in the middle of a very sad or very tense uh, debate, someone is saying something so stupid that someone is laughing and the opposite happens, like the moment where they are talking about these stupid slogans uh, with, for the gay, yeah. gay pride, and the guy say, it's maybe my last gay pride. Right. And, uh, I I I'm st I still uh, I'm still moved by this slogan yeah. so much. It's uh, it's like uh, how can, how could we make fun yeah, yeah, of yeah. this? And of course, we knew that the spectators, the society around yeah. us was terrified by this kind of slogan. So it yeah. was kind of fun for us, but it meant something real for us. Yeah, absolutely great. Well, uh, Robin Campillo, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks. So before we begin, um, you saw the film quite a while ago now, didn't you, Irena? I, I did, and then I rewatched it on Monday uh, very recently, a couple of days ago, okay. when we had an introduction by Robin Campillo, who wow. was over for Flair, yeah, the okay. BFI uh, LGBT plus festival. Okay. Um, so I've had a refresh, which was much needed yeah. because I bawled through the final 40 minutes <laughs> of this film the first time I watched it. And all the way home, which makes it a total of about 120 minutes. Wow, perfect. 
Yes, I, I saw it at the London Film Festival last year. Okay. Uh, Robin Campello also turned up for that. Uh, it's notable, actually, that if you cr- trawl YouTube to find Robin Campello talking about uh, BPM, you will find dozens and dozens of pieces of film. Uh, he absolutely loves talking about his film. Um, it's about it's a film that's dear, dearer to his heart, and he really wanted this message to come out, and he is um, you know, tireless in, 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 in promoting it, and rightly so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because it's obviously such a personal project. And sometimes yeah. when filmmakers write and work from the heart in such a way, the product is at times questionable, perhaps uh, not very uh, objective. And I think actually what is remarkable about BPM is really this absolutely amazing representation of uh, the history of activism that uh, um, ACT UP have, have kind of been responsible for in France but it's also a film that goes way beyond that so there's this kind of three-part structure to me mm-hmm. um, the sort of the activism and looking at how these groups work together then there's this love story and concentrating on this couple that forms out of the actions that the the group takes uh, and then there's this absolutely arresting final section which is about I called it death in my summary mm. of the film, but it's also so much more than just death. And it's sort of a sense of life and death together. I mean, obviously, every story of AIDS is a story of death and the story of facing up to very probable death. And I think the film has not just its personal quality, but really quite a universal appealing um, emotional quality that mm. is very connectable and very relatable. Yes, I agree. I mean, if you think, think about the structure you were describing there, talking about the group ethic, the sequences of debate in the auditorium, um, and then you have this very, very personal, narrow-focused love story, which ends, um, well, we won't spoil too much, but it sort of ends in a very emotional way. And then you have the coda, which is this the group reunifying around this, and, and there's a kind of marriage of the two, of the two different themes, tones, aesthetics, um, all together. And that's a rather sublime sort of way to finish the film. It's really something that I I was very struck about in Eastern Boys as well, this um, real ability that Campillo has to kind of work with large groups and yet be able to kind of individualise each character uh, quite sensitively and quite concisely and very economically. There's You don't have to know a lot of backstory about many characters to understand where they've come from and why they're doing what they're doing, uh, which I think is brilliant. In a, in a Hollywood film, uh, <laughs> the, the opening you know scene, the opening 20 minutes of, of this film just would have a long mm. uh, explainer about who is who and why they're doing what they do and how do they uh, come to be part of this activist group. And yet uh, here we just start straight into the action and the opening action which is literally an action an action that the activist group are taking to disrupt um, what I think is a a sort of medical lecture or a lecture Mm. of a pharmaceutical company discussing their latest findings which obviously the activist groups deem to be totally insufficient and not open uh, enough with the actual patients and the victims and the people who absolutely need the drugs that these people are working on and the action goes wrong um, and intercut with the action, which is sort of where you're placed as a, as a viewer from the very beginning. You're right in the middle of it, up to a point where you're so close to it that you don't know what you're looking at, mm. is a sequence that takes place uh, in, in a meeting of the activist group uh, where the discussion is all about what went wrong and why. But we are introduced to that by a, a character 
uh, who is uh, uh, Thibault, I think, is one of the leaders mm. of, of the group, who is explaining the rules of engagement to the four new people who are joining. And uh, these four new people, among them, are, are two characters who are going to be key. One of them is Nathan, 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 um, and the other is Jeremy. Um, and the rules of engagement are 100% accurate um, from my not very sort of limited knowledge of ACT UP. Um, and I found these fascinating. Mm. I'm really glad you picked up on that, actually, Irene, because um, one of the things about Campillo's um, writing is that he doesn't expose or explain at all. Um, and he was very conscious, I think, coming into this film that he simply couldn't get away with that. But happily, um, because he's a brilliant writer, he found um, organic ways in which to do so. You've um, given a prime example of that, which is that new people who came, from what we can gather, came to these um, conferences and meetings every week or so, different, uh, a group of new people would come in. And they would have, they would be welcomed in and, and have it explained to them. Um, and of course, the other uh, brilliant sort of technique he uses is to use the discussions and debates themselves and people's essentially account of what occurred, people's accounts and people's arguments um, against what should have happened, what you know, what 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 didn't happen, what what went wrong. Uh, those things are all very expository. They they all essentially bring you right into um, the action and they explain precisely where you are and what you are. So you're dragged right into it organically, and yet you have you're given an awful lot of explanation quite early on. Yeah, there's quite a lot to focus on. But what really struck me about the, the rules of engagement in the activist groups uh, were a couple of things. One uh, it was this um, notion of we don't applaud each other, regardless mm. of what the intervention is and whether people approve of it. Uh, we click our fingers and, yeah. and kind of... And so, uh, because that's such a bizarre thing, yeah. so I was really glad to have that explained to me. And it's never been 100% clear to me why the, the clicking on the fingers as opposed to the clapping. Like I remember like at uni, like poetry slams and things like that would uh -huh. have no clapping. It would always be, it would be that. I'm not sure. There, there's definitely a time element to it because yeah. they were saying, I mean, these meetings were clearly quite late at night yeah. and everybody was tired and frankly ill yeah. and um, they needed to get home. And actually the more clapping there is, the, you can add half an hour to the, um, to the meeting, can't you? So I think there was that just basic prosaic um, practice. Yeah. Element. There's also uh, what I kind of uh, then... Uh, sort of made it my interpretation uh, was to think that you know clapping is a very loud and very disruptive yeah yes. uh, and oral like, experience and, yeah and like for entertainment purposes I guess whereas the clicking of the fingers is snappier is shorter and it's quieter and there's kind of a you know a lot of emotion in the room and at the same time uh, the clicking kind of does it send a sign of approval, but not a sign of celebration, which I thought was really interesting. It's also um, a wonderful cinematic technique. Absolutely, exactly. I was going to say that it just sounds incredible. Yeah. And at the screening, I was at on Monday. At the end, the 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 screening room erupted in an applause, and then people started clicking their fingers, <laughs> which was brilliant. brilliant. Um, and the other thing that is very very striking about the rules is um, this constant aspiration to democracy mm -hmm. and to the idea that everyone has a right to speak in public, but there are rules of engagement. You need to put your name down if you want to speak. First, you raise your hand, you put your name down on a list, and when it's your turn to speak, you speak. And that is the rule. That rule is broken a number of times mm -hmm. because obviously emotions uh, intervene yeah. and people want to explain what they did and why they did it. And there's a lot of um, sort of power balances and imbalances in the room. Um, from my experience of certain activist groups, uh, 
that was very recognizable how you know everybody kind of starts with this role and everyone starts with the same objective and the same mission and yet things kind of fall apart inevitably and i thought there was a real um a real sense of um understanding of mm. the dynamics of the group uh which was not simply to say we're all fighting for the same thing and it's going to be wonderful and it will all have a great major impact of course the the work of activist groups like act up was fundamental in uh taking us to the place where we are at today in terms of um aids awareness and uh medication for hiv yeah. essentially it was really it's impossible to understate just how vital that work was and it had results but inevitably all of the groups that were participant in the big kind of fight of the 80s and 90s to you know raise awareness of aids and kind of fight against aids they all fell apart it's interesting you picked up on the power dynamics because one of the more captivating things about the ensemble sequences of the debates is that you have characters in the film who are clearly primary characters i mean it's obvious fairly early on um who is going to come out of this as a primary character and you have people who have stronger characters than others you have some very shy and retiring people in these scenes um quite deliberately so and robin campello himself made no secret of the fact that he was one of the shy and retiring ones in these meetings in fact i think he Uh, admitted to slightly fantasizing that that um Nathan uh, played by Arnaud Valois was was a sort of version of him uh, he, the way Robin Campello puts it is a very hunky version of him <laughs> uh, but, I, but clearly that's the that's the point and when you talked about power dynamics it, whoever has whoever has the chair at any one time ultimately has the power it doesn't matter what sort of character they are how strong they are in real life how uh, aggressive their interventions are if they have the chair they are in charge and when they say shut up people shut up and if they say no arguing in the corridor come back in mm. then the the very strong characters who were all arguing in the corridor are file back in heads down and get back on with it and that was very arresting this is also something that is reflected in the particular group of people that Campido decides to focus on as his main characters because um it it is obviously undeniable that AIDS and HIV activism was something that was primarily coming from the the gay men's community however i think it's fantastic that campillo has decided to look beyond just a simple uh, mm. gay men's health mm. uh, kind of group which is where all of this stem from and include so many other examples yeah. of people who were affected by this so there are uh, quite a few female characters who are very um they're sketched but they are sketched very thoroughly and very interestingly and i found them the two of them really yes. compelling yeah. um One of my favorite characters is Helen. I was yeah, the mother and son. The Who mother are real based on real people that yeah. were in the group with uh, Robin. Really, so the yeah. the situation there is is the son is a, a teenager who has um picked up HIV from blood transfusion. Yeah. Um and uh, he's a hemophiliac and whenever um they go into actions and things like that the group really looks after him making sure that he has yeah. his medication when yeah. the police drag him away yeah. they pick up his pills and just take yeah. him with them and they shout to the police he's hemophiliac please look after him. Uh because um hemophilia is, a, is an illness uh through which if you get a cut or something and you start bleeding 
you will just continue to bleed yeah. to death. Um, so th- there's this kind of caring nature of it. Um, there is also a um, a character who I think is a prostitute, uh, a character who's a drug addict, mm. and a character who's deaf and comes in with in- mm. his interpreter who then signs. And that's another great moment when you're sort of in silence yes. watching this person speak and then the interpreter translates for the rest of the group. Yeah. And I thought really the... the Democracy and the diversification of of this um, group was so organic and very, very accurate and very reflective of so many different aspects of this big question. So it was it was amazing because I think this gives the film a lot of um, relatable points. Yeah. And you mentioned there about how important this group dynamic and the relationships between them is. And I loved it how. You know, these are people that are they're closer than brothers and sisters. They're closer than a family. They are. They're each other's lovers. They're each other's doctors. They're each other's advisors. They're all. They're all scientists. They're all politicians. They're all writers. They. They have to be so many things for each other. Yeah. And that really comes across. And of course, none of them are that by business. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, they're all, all people who do yeah. other things. One of them is a hospital porter. Another is a graphic designer or something like that. Um, and these were all people who were forced into, mm. you know, m- medical research, into having to analyze and understand very detailed and complex chemical reports, uh, who learn to medicate themselves and others and help each other. And this is really the great, astonishing result. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. To the group like yeah. ACT UP. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the documentary How to Survive a Plague, which is uh, uh, the history of uh, the New York group of ACT UP. And that, was that the original? Was that where it started? Yes. Yeah. So ACT UP started in New York, I think in 1987, as a result of the Gay Men's Health mm. Center, I think it was called, which was the very, very first group of um, gay men's um, activists um, against AIDS. Um, and that kind of group collapsed for various reasons. And one of their members was Larry Kramer, the playwright who wrote uh, The Normal Heart, which is the first, considered to be the first AIDS play uh, in 1987. And it was really a personal story, much like BPM, uh, of his engagement with this particular group. And it's it's really the story of a, a bunch of men dying and kind of really trying to help each other. Mm. And one thing that always struck me about that film and that that, that play, which was turned into film uh, by HBO, um, is just how many funerals there are. Mm. They, they're constantly going to funerals. And there are, there's a character who has an address book of contacts and is pulling out a leaf from it every day. Uh, so there's a sense of, you know, dispersing and losing people on a da- daily basis. I mean, the AIDS 
AIDS virus was a plague. Mm. Millions of people died uh, in the first 10, 10 years of it. Um, I think as of today, there are 36 million people who are affected by it. Mm. Uh, so right at the time uh, of the, the Gay Men's Health Center sort of falling apart and disbanding, Larry Kramer uh, attended another um, activist meeting and said, we need to do something that is actual political action. This cannot be treated simply as a medical issue, but it's an issue that requires the intervention of governmental policy. And of course, this was Reagan's America. Mm. Uh, no one was interested in helping a group of gay men uh, to survive. Uh, in fact, from my memories, uh, there was a lot of um, sort of complacent thinking that mm. They've brought this upon themselves, unfortunately, and the church was vastly complicit in this. It's worth, so, it's worth mentioning, actually, that um, what you've just described about Reagan's America is not a million miles away from Mitterrand's France either. I think that comes out a little bit in the film. Um, it's not quite as overbearing as how you're describing, but um, uh, you know, France has often puffed its chest out and boasted about liberty, equality and fraternity. Uh, around this time, there was precious little of any of those, uh, especially as far as um, the, the, the minorities that are described in the film are concerned. Um, and so we talk about Reagan's America. It was, it, was, it was the same, frankly, in France. And the, there's a couple of little allusions in the film. One is a couple of, um, well, a chap gets up in the tube and walks away, doesn't he, when he sees um, Arno and Nathan kissing. Uh, and... Uh, it, it was exactly the same problem. Um, these people had done their homework, these these young people, um, and they were simply trying to get the message across that gay people should not be treated differently because of their lifestyle. And it's something we assume and take for granted now was absolutely not taken for granted at the time, even in a country which is at the forefront of human rights. Yeah, and in fact, I think I read Robin Campillo talk about precisely this and sort of discussing how even the the notion and the idea of promoting uh, liberty, equality and fraternity, obviously the big ideals of the French Republic, which had just had its big anniversary in 1989. Yes. So, you know, Bastille, this big anniversary, yeah. the French Revolution, obviously this great moment of people's activism and revolt against a system that's effectively oppressing and, and <coughs> functioning on inequality. Um, he, he was saying that the climate of, you know, pushing this message and this discourse of equality meant that minorities and minority issues were mm. completely disregarded, that no one was really taking care of them. So that's, I think, another reason why the, the film's representation policy is so significant and so accurate and really functional and it, it's very successful as well. Worth mentioning that in terms of the political messages that the ACT UP were getting across um, and what makes it works so well with BPM is that uh, the characters themselves are in themselves slogans and banners. It's, it's their own disease. It's their own bodies that are there on show. It's their own wasting away. Uh, and th they personalise the political struggle so well and so strongly. And obviously that works really, really well in the film because as you are uh, connecting with characters, you're recognising that the characters are trying to make themselves connect or trying to make their situations and their personal lives and backgrounds and lifestyles connect with the public mm. as well. Uh, and that's a, a sort of terrific uh, recipe. Yeah, I loved how they talk about what to do at the Gay Pride each time. I'm not, I'm not sure how... Um what sort of time span the film has? It jumps by months. I've noticed cuts, in fact, overlapping uh, sequences right. where, which jump by months. Uh, I only noticed that last night when I okay. watched it again. 
Uh, but I think we're, we're talking about two or three years. Okay. But yeah, each time when it's Gay Pride, they talk about what's the best. And the scene where they're coming up with different slogans is genuinely really funny. Yes. Some um, of them are impossible to translate yeah. and absolutely <laughs> perfect. But I think this is an interesting thing about the film. Is, and I spoke to this about Robin a little bit. Your expectations for a film with this subject matter, you know, a film about a disease that killed millions of people, you'd expect it to be very grave, very morose, very kind of depressing and downbeat but this film is so lively and so like so wants to live and I think that's reflected in in those really heated debates they have in the boardroom and then also in everything outside the boardroom so should we talk a bit about what happens outside the boardroom and uh, before we were we were start recording you guys were talking about Paris in the film and how Paris is viewed. Yeah, to me, uh, it's kind of uh, I was having a thought that sort of connects both with uh, with what Julian was talking about and what you were talking about. The idea of the body, um, the body personal made the body political and how it connects with action and Mm -hmm. taking to the streets and doing things that are, you know, clearly very exhilarating in terms of taking action, protesting, throwing fake blood bombs around. smashing things up Mm. which they don't really do that much of but there was a lot of that um it it wasn't a sort of violent protest but stuff did get smashed uh (laughs) and uh but also this idea of of the street as this public place where you parade enjoy a gay pride and that conversation about the slogans for gay pride is also so funny the film has a lot of humor about everything you know and and it's also um very uh, brilliant are showing the extravagance of so many of these characters. Uh, so Sean has this idea of um, doing the gay cheerleaders mm. who are going to come up with all these slogans yeah. about um, about AIDS and raising awareness of it. And it's it's hysterical. Mm. Plus, the music really helps. There's a lot of, uh, you know, moments when the, the groups go clubbing after the big action, yeah. the big sort of protest, the big political engagement moment. They'll go clubbing and they're all just kind of... almost like a sort of ritual for them, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. dancing around and jousting with each other and just kind of... It's very joyful and yet at the same time there's a melancholy to it and something incredible happens in the first scene when they go clubbing. That's right. Well, I I suppose if you're leading me on to that, then then, then, then that is... uh, The the standout sequence, and this is, uh, again, to come back to Wade Campillo thinks about filmmaking now he is determined to to be truthful and 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 realistic if he can but he he will not allow himself to be stuck in one type of aesthetic he's determined as well to to go he 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 wants to explore the sensual side of cinema and what he calls the dreamlike side of cinema mm. and, and you can see this but best in the club scenes which are uh, shot with a completely different aesthetic and 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 uh, a, a very interesting uh, conceit of, of showing the space between the dancers and showing essentially the the atmosphere and the air and what we see are dust particles uh, uh, between uh, uh, you know, reflected in a spotlight and those dust particles then suddenly congeal to create what could look like uh, a virus and so it's the most sort of abstract and uh, experimental part of the film. And yet it's done in such a simple way. And in fact, it was shot in a very simple way. They simply ch- changed the focus and put a spotlight on the on the atmosphere in the nightclub. And the, the dust particles were there. Uh, originally, he thought it would just be thin air and the dust particles were there. And that got him to think about how it worked. But the point is, um, and it's coming back on what you said, Irene, uh, Rena, which is that the shroud of death is, is, is always there. And what Campello, he wants to make sure that we never, we never completely let go of that. 
but what he does is to essentially reflect his own reality, which was that it was a joyful time. It was a very, very exciting time for him. As I said, he was a withdrawn um, uh, young man uh, who who was caught up in something extremely exciting. And when you talked about comedy and performance, um, you know, his obsession with acting is 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 perfect for this because. All of these characters are actors. They're performers. They have to. They have to essentially carry out what we call stunts or whatever, um, and they have to perform. And there are essentially moments of genuine comedy. Um, my my own standout one is the one where they they go into a school classroom and they interrupt uh, the, the history lesson or something and ask the teacher for ten minutes of her time so that they can talk about AIDS to her pupils who are all sort of mid teenagers. And of course she um, agrees because she thinks it's an important message. And then halfway through a discussion about lubricant and fellatio um, she starts to realise that she, she might have gone a bit far and and just when you, th- I mean you're already laughing at this point and then just when you think it's um, the comedy's over the bell goes, these, these students have been transfixed up to then by this by these people coming in and talking about AIDS and then the bell goes, the buzzer uh, and of course like all students in every school ever, they all start packing away their stuff and leaving before <laughs> he's not. finished talking so yeah. it's just it's a brilliant comedy sketch and, yeah. and yet within that, you have these two moments. There is a boy who is looking very, yeah. very serious and very sad and who is completely transfixed by the people he's looking at. There's a sense of recognition there. Yeah. Am I one of them? Am I at risk? Has he done something? As we hear time and time again in, in yeah. the film, uh, Sean's backstory is that he gets infected the first time he has sex and he has sex with his teacher yeah. at age 16. 16. Yeah. 16. Uh, so in this boy, we see obviously a kind of echo, I think, especially watching the film the second time around. I hadn't noticed him so much the Is first that scene time. before or after the, when you find out about Sean? I think it's after because oh, right. um, then, yeah. Sean, Sean and, and Nathan um, kiss, Nathan yeah. kiss yeah. Uh, for the first right. time. Yeah. Do we, we don't hear that boy speak, do we? He doesn't speak. No, he just brilliant. looks at them. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't, I don't think he even picks up a condom. He just looks at them. Yeah. But there is something that the camera does lingering on him, yeah. which is extraordinary. Yeah, and even later when they're in the courtyard of the school, he's still, he sort of slowly walks out yeah. of the door and it still focuses on him. Yeah. And you're thinking. Well, and of yeah. course, they also then talk to this girl who says, yeah. well, I don't need a condom. I'm not going to have, I'm, I'm not going to pick up AIDS because yeah. I'm not gay. Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a wonderfully sort of nonsensical left. thing to say. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But it it sort of tells you what the mindset was yes. at the time, and what a lot of, in my experience as a girl growing up in Catholic Italy, mm, uh, yeah. we were certainly never encouraged to use condoms because right. you know God doesn't want you to use condoms. Obviously, no. God doesn't want you to have sex at all. Abs- abstention is abstention. The only, is the only Obviously, way. that's a message that's never going to work out. No. So all of these stunts about distributing condoms and sort of talking to students at that young age we're bringing home a reality that I think many parents were kind of really in denial about and certainly the big political yeah. sphere was. Uh, Julian, you you lived in Paris in the, in the 90s when this was set? Yes, well, pr- briefly. Coincidentally, uh, I was reading about when Robin Campillo joined ACT UP and it was in 92, which is when I moved to Paris for two years. I was at university in, uh, mm-hmm. there for... Um, uh, I, I probably won't linger too long on this because I know you're going to ask me, did you get involved in all these <laughs> things? Um, I was actually vaguely aware of ACT UP Paris, but I think one of the striking things looking back is that their, the coverage of ACT UP Paris was relatively pathetic, actually. Uh, we heard about their activities in student circles, but they weren't on television. Mm. They weren't properly mediatised. Um, 
And it always struck me that um, Robin Campello rightly says that this is a film that that tries to uh, explain that we we need militancy now more than ever. Uh, and this was real militancy. And what we have now is we have uh, armchair, angry armchair critics um, using uh, using uh, social media. Uh, it strikes me that he's obviously absolutely right about this, and uh, and I can't. I have to hold my hands up. I've never been particularly engaged like you, Arena, uh, but. <laughs> Social media, ironically, had it been around at the time of Act Up Paris, then all of us would have known yeah. all about them and they would have been in much more prominent and they would have had much less of a struggle to get their message across. And I think it's testament to the fact that they achieved what they did achieve without, those, without really any assistance from the French media at all. Act Up did get involved, Act Up Paris specifically, did get involved in a very big mediatized stunt, which is referred to very briefly in the film. And it's, it's someone someone says this idea jokingly, says, let's put a big pink condom on the obelisk <laughs> yes. in Place de la Concorde. And they did actually do it yes. uh, on the 1st of December 1993. Uh, it lasted about 20 minutes before it was taken <laughs> down. But there are pictures if you look it okay. up online. Um, what's quite interesting is that this stunt became, there's sort of two things. One is, because it happened on the 1st of December, that's the reason why the 1st of December is World, Day, World AIDS Day. Oh, okay. um, yeah. I think it's commemorated every year for that. Um, and secondly, um, this was sponsored by United Colors of Benetton. They needed a, uh, a sort of sponsor to kind of, first of all, make the giant uh, yeah. <laughs> the giant condom. Um, but also United Colors of Benetton was one of those brands that was had a very... Um, controversial uh, ad creative whose name was Oliviero Toscani who was a, also himself a photographer and at the time he was involved in making these campaigns uh, which had very shocking imagery and um, some of them had you know the clothes of a soldier who was killed in Bosnia so slightly later on um, some of them had images of a nun and priest uh, mm-hmm. kissing mm-hmm. and one of his campaigns that was incredibly shocking and incredibly controversial in Italy uh, was using a colorized uh, photograph of a um, dying uh, AIDS activist whose name I think was David Kirby who may have been um, who was a, if he's the right person that I'm thinking of he was a performance artist mm-hmm. and he uh, his role was to play Jesus whenever they did protests against uh, the church. Um, and kind of, I think you see him quite a lot in How to Survive a Plague. And in this particular advert, you know, photograph, he's represented in basically his final days. And he looks like, uh, you know, a, a dead, a dying Christ from a Goya painting. His mm. face is totally emaciated and his parents are around him kind of crying. Uh, obviously, this was done to raise awareness of the AIDS crisis, but also to sell clothes, which was very despicable. But at the same time, in Italy, for instance, it did bring it into the conversation. Mm. Suddenly people knew what this was, uh, which is not something that had happened before. Yeah. The story of how you, whether you compromise what you're doing is, is prominent as well in the film. Yeah. This yeah. is so much, it's two, two and a quarter hours film, so much in it. <laughs> um, and, and yes, indeed, the, the debates often rage around, you know, do we, you know, to what extent, how far do we go? Who do we partner up with? You know, will we be seen as um, sort of selling out? Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised what you say about the, the Benetton ad. I mean, the, the condom on the obelix, which, which was actually on the mainstream uh, news uh, at 9 p.m., was, um, yeah, um, that, that has everything of the stunt. And it would need the support of a corporation like that for, for something like that to get off the ground. I don't know how much it would have cost to um, 
to uh, paint the scene red. Oh, uh, that, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. such a great scene. May, may, maybe that. somebody will r- rustle up some cash to do that. <laughs> Did they actually recreate it for the film? I wonder. Cause I well, it, and it's, it's it's the idea of a red river and the and blood red river is sort of from sort of ancient. Uh, ancient literature, but um, Campillo himself said that he, well, it was an idea that came up in one of the debates, but he he said he liked the idea of a river anyway. He saw the river mm. Seine as mm. a kind of uh, an emblem of his film uh, because the way, again, I'm sorry to always drag it back to him and the way he thinks about films, but he he said his film is like a, a river novel, uh, a roman fleuve, which is a sort of, shall we say, uh, a long, drawn-out story, but with lots of different tributaries and directions, but it always keeps moving in one direction. And, yeah. uh, and that was that symbol. And also the sense of flow, you mm. know, the flow of life and the continuation and the, the blood flow. To me, the first time I saw the club scene in which, yeah. you know, you move from people clubbing and then the scene becomes more and more abstract, as we've described it, um, the first time I was looking at, at it, I thought I was really watching the inside of someone's veins, mm. uh, you know, the, the blood moving into it. And I think this connects back to the title of the film, which is, you know, the notion of 120 BPM, which mm. is obviously the rhythm you you dance to in yeah. club music, but also a heart that's working at an incredibly high, heightened, yeah. excited rate. And that's the excitement sure. of life, of danger, of everything that can happen to you and how this just keeps pumping and going. I think it's probably worth going into a spoiler area now and talk about the closing sequence of the film. Yes. All right, yes. So uh, if you haven't seen the film, do go check it out and then uh, quickly come back uh, for this section. (laughs) Uh, One of the main things that a lot of people say about the film after seeing it is they talk about how long they cried for. And uh, you've already mentioned you cried for 120 minutes. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Well, I won't disclose how long I cried for. I was very in tears most most of the film on and off. (laughs) Obviously, the final uh, section involves the death of one of the main characters. And if you like, uh, that is is dealt with over a course of a good half hour, actually. And it's not, um, no punches are pulled um, there. Um, And then... uh, Immediately afterwards, as I said before, there's this regrouping of the main characters that we've seen and um, a sense of continuation, but also um, a sense of celebration of the mm. life of the characters died. What strikes me about about the whole film is that in two and a quarter hours of, um, of a film chock, chock to the brim with politics, mm. um, what really comes out at the end is the sensuality of the piece and sensuality not in terms of naughty stuff although there's sort of plenty of that if you're a fan uh, but in terms of uh, the, the, the sense that feeling is what matters most to what Campillo wants mm. he wants there is no sequence in 120 BPM however dry that is not punctuated with feeling and I and I don't think that's an artificial construct I think that represents Campillo's experience yeah. of living with these people you could have a long debate and then somebody would faint um, because they were physically unwell. Um, you could have s- sequences where people were uh, arguing and shouting at each other and hurting each other's feelings, and then somebody would say something so ridiculous that they'd all start laughing. Um, and that, that, that change in tone uh, is there, and it's, it's about saying all these things mattered. They're very, very important messages. The actual debate itself is, is the crucible of the drama, but 
it always comes back to emotion. It always comes back to feelings. And that's the sensuality that came through, I think. Yeah, I mean, to me, what struck me about that final sequence is how much it came back to life. I uh, started crying at the scenes where the scene is turned red. Um, there were lots of moments that were really, really moving in the film up until that point. The funeral of Jeremy being one of them. He was, you know, the, the first one who has this kind of street parade mm. funeral. Um, but then that moment with the river, it just sort of got me and I started to cry and cry and cry. And then eventually a good 30 minutes later, we get to Sean's death, uh, which is obviously devastating. And I thought the film was over. <laughs> And then after that, we get this extraordinary quarter of an hour in which people start to arrive. Yeah. Um, Sean's mother makes coffee. She's bought biscuits for people. A lot of coffee. You <laughs> need it. Uh, and people hug each other and people cry and people say, I want to see the body. And people say, I don't want to see the body. And then there is this incredible <laughs> shot, which I think is just the greatest and most revelatory shot in the film, in which you are looking at uh, simultaneously two rooms in the flat yeah. and in one room is the dead body of Sean who has been dressed mm -hmm. and is ready to be taken away and in the other room is the group all together talking about what they're going to do next yeah. talking with his mother and there's incredible warmth there and there is that moment of comedy yeah. in which uh, they say to the mother well, you're probably aware that Sean wanted to have a political funeral and wanted his ashes scattered onto the insurers who refused to insure him and look after him because he was sick. And the mother, this is no news to her, but she says, so were you thinking of a 50-50 arrangement? <laughs> <laughs> she, you know, she says, I would like to keep some of them. So were you thinking of a 50-50 arrangement? She goes, I was thinking more of an 80-20 arrangement. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's still my child. Uh, but in the end... She does give some of his ashes away. And what you see next is the next action. What are they going to do? Yeah. And they do scatter his ashes onto this like insurer's conference party or yes. whatever. And they're having yeah. these canapes and champagne. Oh, yeah. All, you know, smeared with his ashes. And then the music starts again. And then I just thought by this point, I just couldn't see anymore because <laughs> yeah. I was a mess. You're taking it. It's the Going back to that one sequence that you isolated with the the dead body in one room and the and the and the the group in the other room mm. just going on Obviously, that includes a hookup doesn't it between Sean's ex-boyfriend and Tibor who had his eyes on him from the start that i think that sequence where you split the two is i think it's too, it's a taboo breaking shot um because i think you, you the death is absolutely present um in that scene and there's no shying away from it and the film has completely earned that shot which is could be could be grotesque in a lot of different films if it wasn't earned in the way it was uh, because death has always been there with mm. them alongside them in everything they've done and the way the film doesn't let you quite forget that um, and then simply demonstrates it very clearly at the end is um, as you say that's the one that takes people over the edge quite often yeah Absolutely. Film of the year. It's a bit early, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> is it? <laughs> I've, I've been wanting to is say it since October when I saw it. <laughs> I, I think it'll be hard to, I think I'll find it hard to find another film this year that has the same impact on me. Yes, it's a film that will stay with, with people for a long time. I think so, definitely. Yeah. Well, we're talking about it and it's not been released yet in the UK, but already people have been talking about this for months. Mm. And that's partly because it's been, uh, you know, it was uh, premiered at Cannes last year. But yes. I think 
it really has a lasting impact that a lot of films don't have over a month. Also worth mentioning that it was totally robbed of its Oscar that it completely deserved and was unfortunately not nominated for. But um, that could be another podcast episode talking (laughs) about the reasons why. Yeah. Possibly too much naughty stuff. it's, It's politics. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we haven't we haven't touched on the naughty stuff that much, no. but um, there is an incredible sex scene in this film, and it's really long, but really really important. It feels really needed and necessary. I think Campillo, uh, Eastern Boys, he'd already started a little bit with showing right. not graphic sex, but with showing um, sort of um, not hiding, you know, the, the obvious things one hides in in sex in, in sex scenes. Uh, he goes a little bit further this time but i think what he really likes about sex scenes is the is the ancillary aspects of mm. sex and the before and after the discussions in this case about you know the ethics of of a, of a um, zero positive and a zero negative i can't I don't know if you know what the english expression is. HIV, uh, positive HIV positive and, HIV and negative, negative people having sex prosaic details of lube and contraceptives etc and little details. Um, dis- the, the conversation is almost more important. Maybe, maybe me saying this, but I think the conversation around that sex scene is almost more important than the sex aesthetically. Yeah. Um, and um, and the honesty of it is is brilliant because the honesty makes up for the fact that it's not a graphic pornographic sex scene, but it feels absolutely as if it were real. Yeah, it's it's sex about intimacy. Yeah, and it's about these two people really discovering each other and telling each other. These stories of uh, past lovers as well, which are very likely ghost stories, uh, both of their ex-partners or sort of the, the people they conjure up are likely dead. Um, and so there's, there's this kind of, again, the sense of something that is full of life happening yeah. at the same time as the memory of a very likely death, uh, which is absolutely extraordinary and is what makes these sex scenes so functional to the film. And so affecting. Absolutely. I thought you were going to mention the sex scene in the hospital, actually, which is a bit shorter. Uh, But when you uh, at the London Film Festival, where Robin Campillo was there, somebody stood up and very sheepishly asked, "Why did you have him giving him a hand job in the hospital?" And then sat down again. (laughs) And everyone sort of slightly groaned and eye rolled and thought, (laughs) "This is not a very good question." But Robin Campillo. I think answered it took about 15 minutes to answer the question it wow. turned out to be one of the most fascinating <laughs> questions yeah. to him and I suspect probably because it's not one that he'd had been asked yeah, before totally. and um, he went into some detail which I, I don't know how you know how much we can go into but he said originally the the sequence had was supposed to end with um, with a facial ejaculation right. uh, but the, the actors having discussed it felt that um, it might be physically difficult um, to to achieve that, um, l- largely because I think the actor playing Sean, um, Noel Biscayar, said that he wouldn't have the physical strength to, to do what was needed in order for that to happen. Um, but Campillo also said that he is not interested in provoking, and whilst he believes in truth and honesty in, in sex scenes, he he knows that the provocation is what would come mm. come out first if, he had, yeah. if he'd done a sequence like that. And he, in the end, he preferred what the actors had done um, and uh, that is emblematic, I think, of the way he is as a filmmaker. As a writer and editor, he had no connection with actors. He mm. simply wrote sequences for them and then cut them. Uh, as he became a filmmaker, he allowed himself to be taken over by by actors and actors' uh, reactions. And he said something very, very 
very, very interesting, which is that he sees himself as the main character in his film Eastern Boys, played by Olivier Rabourdin. He's a character who allows himself to be invaded in that film. And he says that that's how he feels when he's working with actors on a, on a project. Uh, and he wants them to do make the running. And then as they work, he sees the gestures, he sees um, yeah. their personalities, and essentially this, he takes the script in that direction. Mm. It's not especially new and original, but what I think is fascinating about Campillo is it's the guy who worked as a writer and editor and then found himself as a director in a totally different register. One one quick thing I wanted to add about the, the hand job scene in the <laughs> hospital uh, is that it's also incredibly comedic. It's yeah. funny. There's, there's aspects to it that are funny. Um, much as a lot of sex is funny yeah. and weird, if you think about it. But it's also a great reminder to Sean that his body can do other things than just being a sick body. Yeah. And I think that is an incredibly compassionate gesture and the, the true gesture of a lover mm. who can still see him as that body, as opposed to the body who's covered in sores and mm. dying. And I that was like an incredible, incredible scene to me. I, I didn't find it Emotion silly, again. emotional yeah. and um, really very understandable mm. and full of empathy and just very humane. So that is BPM, Film of the Year, as, as we've Film decided. Film of the Year. <laughs> um, so that's out in cinemas and is also available on Curls on the Home Cinema as well. And uh, if you do have any thoughts uh, on 120 beats per minute, do let us know by emailing podcast at curlson.com and we'll read them out on next week's show. Did you cry longer than Irena? The record is currently 120 minutes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it may be poetic license. <laughs> you can cry for six months, haven't you? <laughs> uh, so it, please do subscribe to the show and leave a comment and a review, and you can catch us on iTunes and Acast. Uh, thank you both for chatting with me today. Um, Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so thank you, Julian Allen. Thank for you very much. Pod debut. Hope thank you enjoyed you it. Very and much. Thank you, Irena. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. See you next week. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.